please join me for our scripture reading today from Mark chapter 4, verses 9 through 20. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Worship team beforehand, I've actually been with you before. If, you, if you've been here since before 2014 or so, uh, I preached for y'all way, way, way back then, and it's a joy to be here. Um, my family and I actually live in Winston-Salem. Um, I'm a pastor at Hope Prez there, and so I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to bring our greetings uh, with you from Clyde, who was my senior pastor uh, for a couple of years as well, which is uh, why I'm here, because he's my friend, and I love him, and I love y'all, and it's uh, truly a joy to be here. T- this morning, we're going to focus on, if you haven't been here uh, throughout the uh, series that Clyde started, we're going to focus on uh, one particular soil, the soil where thorns um, grow up and choke out the word. Now, I'm sure some of you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, or you've seen the Disney film, and uh, not just our kids, uh, but our adults as well. If you haven't, it's about four siblings who discover through a wardrobe a land of magic and enchantment. But there's one problem with this world called Narnia. The problem is that it's always winter, but never Christmas. Can you imagine that, boys and girls? Always winter and never Christmas. Always January, but never December. Now, one of the siblings is Edmund. And some of you will remember that Edmund, by himself, stumbled upon a woman called the White Witch. And the white witch or the queen is the woman who has cursed the land. And Edmund is by himself when he meets her, and he's cold and he's shivering. And the witch notices this. And she says, come on up here into my sleigh. And she says, do you want something to drink? She puts a fur coat on him. 
She uses her magic to whip up a hot drink in a goblet. And so he drinks it, and, and she decides, you know what? You need something to eat with that drink. Boys and girls, do you remember what it was that Edmund asked for? Turkish delight. Turkish delight. Now, I didn't know Turkish delight was an actual thing. Uh, Turkish delight is an actual thing, and that kind of ruined this story for me because it's not very nice, in my opinion, if you've ever had the candy Turkish uh, delight. But Edmund loved it. Edmund loved it. And so he asked for it. And so the, the white witch, she used her magic again, and she made him a huge box. It's a several pounds worth of Turkish delight. So he, he just starts shoving it in his mouth. He starts eating it, gobbling down. She's trying to talk to him, and all he can focus on is this Turkish delight. And so he eats, and he eats, and he eats until he's finished the entire box. And the white witch uses this, of course, to trick him, to enchant him. Because she says, I want to meet your brothers and sisters too. I have a plan for you. I'm going to make you a prince. I'm going to bring you back to my palace and you can have all the Turkish delight you want. There'll be rooms full of it. You can eat it for days and days and days. And of course, Edmund is, is intrigued. Of course, I want the Turkish delight, but why do I need to bring my brothers and sisters back? But she says, no, bring them back to me. In fact, I will make you the king and you will rule. And you'll eat Turkish delight for the rest of your days. But the narrator notes something interesting. The narrator says anyone who had ever tasted the Turkish delight would want more and more of it. And would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till it killed themselves. Whoa. The delights of this world promise power. And they promise control, and they're captivating, especially in our 21st century Western world of wealth and prosperity and consumerism. I was on YouTube the other day, and one of the, the little adverts that popped up, it was from Expedia, the travel company. It said, do you think we'll look back on our lives and regret the things we didn't buy or the places we didn't go? And of course, I'm preaching this sermon, so it really stood out to me. But if I weren't preaching this sermon, as many of you, you probably just thought of it as another advert and, and, and maybe even started thinking, yeah, that's right. What have I not bought? Where have I not been? That's what advertising is intended to do. All the things that charm us most, and yet they always overpromise. As you know, when you go on that vacation and you come back and you need a vacation from your vacation, they overpromise and they underdeliver. Instead of satisfying our desires, instead of giving us the power and control that we so long for, we're left with anxiety and fear and disappointment. And yet we want always, we want more and more and more and more until it kills us. How did this white witch distract Edmund? How did she take his eyes off of what was truly good and beautiful? She captured his heart. In our parable today, Jesus says we're no different. He says that the word of the good news of the gospel is planted. It comes to us. It's planted in the soil of our heart. But the things of this world, like thorns, they distract us from its beauty. 
They suffocate the gospel seedling so that it bears no fruit. So today we're going to talk about the heart and the desires of the heart. And I see Rogers out here, and oh man, this is anxiety prone for me because he knows about the anxieties of the heart. He's diagnosed my anxieties before. <laughs> um, didn't mean to embarrass you. Nobody gave me a time limit, by the way. So just raise your hand if the preacher's going too long. We're going to talk about the desires of a heart this morning. The Christian life is intended to be one of wholeheartedness, wholeheartedness, but we settle for much less. We're distracted. We're fearful. And so the question is, how do we do this? How do we pursue wholeheartedness? So this morning, I'm going to talk about three things. You see it there in your, your bulletin or on your screens. Three things, the radiant heart, the ruptured heart, and the restored heart. Now, I grew up in a church, uh, much like um, North Cross, in the PCA denomination. I love the PCA. I've been in it my whole life. I've studied Reformed theology, which if you don't know what that is, it simply talks about the doctrines of God's grace and how they come to us needy people. I love our teaching. And at the same time, we're often so honest about our sin and our need that we might be tempted to believe that there is nothing good in this world. And maybe even it was, it was created bad. Maybe we're singing that song and, and we don't say two things I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, but we just say one thing I confess, my unworthiness. Again, I love our denomination, I love our teaching, but, but when, when we hear Disney say, follow your heart, us reformed people say, no, the heart is desperately evil, it's wicked, right? Jeremiah tells us that. Or we're good Calvinists and we've memorized, the heart is an idol factory. And those things are true. The state of our heart and our need for Jesus. But before we get there, before we even know how desperate our heart is, we have to know how beautiful God created us to be. Singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson, he wrote this song for his kids, and I think he wrote it for me too, because it brings me to tears. It's called Be Kind to Yourself. He says, you got all that emotion. It's heaving like an ocean. You're drowning in a deep, dark well. I can hear it in your voice that if you only had a choice, you would rather be anyone else. I love you just the way that you are. I love the way he made your precious heart. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. So this isn't sloppy sentimentality. We, let's be kind to ourselves this morning, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian church that we are God's masterpiece. We are his workmanship. We are his proudest creation. In fact, this very world that we're living in was created so that the God of the universe could dwell with us. And more than that, even, more than that, God created us in his image, in his very likeness, it says, right? And back in Genesis one, that, that God had set the moon and the sun and the stars in their place. God had, God had formed the dry land. He had separated the seas. 
God had, had sent birds and fish and giraffes to inhabit the world. But for mankind, it says, let us make man in our image. And so in the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us very good. And he did something more. He empowered us. Our hearts are radiant because they reflect his glory to this world. Our hearts are radiant because he sends us out to our neighbors to, to share in this goodness, to point back to our creator God. Now, we've already had our greeting time this morning. I won't embarrass you. But what if during our greeting time every week, instead of just kind of turning to one another and saying, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. you what were you up to last week? What if we turned to one another and said, Hello, your majesty. Hello, your majesty. Now, if you're a visitor this morning, we don't actually do that here. So please come back. We won't embarrass you like that. We're not a cult, I promise. But the creator king has made you in his likeness, which means that you are of royal lineage. And he's created you with a heart. Now, when we think of the heart, we think of, we think of the emotions. We think of, of romance and, and what we are drawn towards. And there is truth to that. But even uh, in the scriptures, in the ancient Near East, the heart was, was where the will was. It's, it's what made decisions in this world. So whether those were decisions for good or for evil, they came from the heart. Because the heart controls our bodies. And it causes us to act. So if our heart is created in God's likeness, that means it's created to do what? To love God and love our neighbor as ourself. That's what I mean by radiant heart. We are wholehearted beings created to reflect his glory and seek the good of our neighbors. We have to start there. I love the children's catechism. It's very simple. Why ought you to glorify God? The answer, because he made me and he takes care of me. So simple and yet so beautifully profound. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no temptation to turn the treasures of this world into, into our gods because we delight in the God who delights in us and he takes care of us. When I visit my counselor, once a month, not Roger, I won't embarrass him again, but he may or may not have an office right next to Roger. I'll sit down and he'll say, okay, where do we need to go today? And typically I'll, you know, whatever's, again, just heaving from my own heart, I'll, I'll just kind of lay out and I'll talk about the past week's events or something that's really particularly troubling me. And where I typically go is, but I knew I, I shouldn't have done it that way, and, and I probably caused this and, and that person to act that way and to feel that way towards me. I, I probably had a, you know, maybe I did something good, but there's probably a bad motivation in there somewhere as well. I was probably selfish. And he's, my counselor is always like, hold on. How does the God of the universe look at you right now? How has he created you? 
My counselor shows me the dignity of how I've been created, how my heart has been created to know God, to love God, to love my neighbor as myself. Desires aren't inherently sinful. We are created with them. But the thing is, we are created to steward them well, right? So there is, unfortunately, bad news. So you good Reformed Calvinists, we're getting to that part now, right? We've settled for much less than what God's created us for. Look back at what Jesus says in verse 19. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, they enter in and they choke the word. And that word there, cares, the cares of the world in verse 19, some, some of your Bible translations might say worries. That word is literally referring to the dividing of a person's being in parts fragmentation, rupturing. How does that happen? If we are created radiant, how does it rupture like that? Well, again, back in Genesis, we don't know how long it was after they were created, but Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and the voice of the serpent comes, the crafty serpent, and he comes and he tempts Eve, and he tempts her away from, from the fruit of, of what she was delighting in to, the, to this other fruit, this new fruit. And he says, did God really tell you you couldn't eat of this tree or even touch it or you would die? That's not true. And the text says this, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took and ate. And she gave it to her husband, and he ate as well. So they disobeyed God. Instead of listening to the voice of the God who made them and cares for them, they listened to the voice of the serpent, and the desires of their eyes led them toward other treasures. And as a result, sin, evil, death, ruptured heart, and with it, the fragmenting of humanity, the fragmenting of our world, the fragmenting of our relationship with God. So that's why we now see the endless pursuit of, of wealth and prosperity, the abuse of power and sex, endless strife, international conflict, strife in our homes, strife at the workplace. Or even amongst the Israelites, this people, the Israelites, remember, they are called out by God as his special people. Instead of listening to his voice and following his word, they chose to follow other gods. Even though God had said, be, be this radiant heart among the peoples of the world so that they will see my glory and give me praise. Remember, they had judges, they had prophets, they had priests, they even had kings. And yet at one point, all of them, without fail, broke God's law. Some of them very, very, very badly. One of them was King Solomon. You remember King Solomon? Um, boys and girls, some of you remember when God came to King Solomon and said, I will give you anything you ask for. King Solomon said, I want wisdom. I want wisdom. And so God said, well, I'll give you everything else as well. I'll give you wealth. 
But Solomon, who had been granted that wisdom, some years later, he became distracted. He was distracted by his wealth. He was distracted by 1,000 wives and mistresses, many from foreign nations. And the text, 1 Kings 11, says that Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God because his wives had turned his heart away. So even this great King Solomon, son of King David, he became distracted and drawn away from God. His ruptured heart became reflected in the fact that the entire kingdom ruptured as well, and God's people went into exile. So what's so dangerous about these thorns that grow up alongside these gospel seedlings in this parable is that they, they grow up with this subtle deadliness. We often don't even notice how deadly they are at first, which is why the voice of Satan and the delight of the fruit was so hard for Adam and Eve to resist because the things of this world promise us life and they promise us satisfaction. And for a time, those things actually do give us satisfaction, but they can't give us the eternal life that our souls crave. I don't know if you're a believer. I said believer, not believer. Believer. If you don't know what a believer is, that's okay. But it's a fan of Justin Bieber. And uh, it's hard to argue whether or not you like Justin Bieber. It's hard to argue whether or not he's on top of the world right now. I mean, he is, right? He has millions of dollars in net worth. He has millions of followers uh, on his social media platforms, millions of fans. He has a supermodel wife all before the age of 30. He's not even 30 yet. And yet, on his latest album, he sings this. What if you had it all, but nobody came to call? What if you had it all, but nobody to call? Maybe then you'd know me, because I've had everything, but no one's listening, and that's just lonely. He was interviewed in GQ last year, and it was a fascinating interview because he, he talks about his album. He talks about this, the feelings that were stirred up when he was writing the album. He says, there was a sense in my life where I was yearning for more. I had the success, and yet I'm still sad. I'm still in pain. I still have these unresolved issues. He says, I thought all of it, all this success was going to make everything good, and yet I'm this young, angry person. I wake up, and my relationships are messed up. I'm unhappy. I have this success, but I think, what is it worth if I'm feeling empty inside? Now, you might not have a supermodel wife. You might not have multi-platinum multi selling albums, but you can probably resonate with Justin Bieber. Whatever it is for you, the parable is intentionally vague when you look at it, right? Jesus says, cares of the world, riches, desire for other things. What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that drives your fears? What is it that motivates your actions? Because deep down, like, like Justin Bieber, the, the I don't have enough is really a, a ruptured heart that's crying, I'm not enough. You see that back in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, they sinned. And it says, the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves 
and made themselves loincloths. So this, this is shame, this deep shame that we feel. We all experience it. It's a universal condition. Whether you claim to be a, a follower of Jesus this morning or whether you're, you're just exploring Christianity, maybe for the first time, all of us are in the same boat here. We all try to cope or, or, or try to heal our ruptured hearts. That's why we have addictions. That's why we have binge eating and binge streaming and, and binge spending. We double down on busyness and, and perfectionism. We try to pull our fragmented selves together to gather some fig leaves for our nakedness. So we have exercise, we have, we have yoga, we have rules and to-do lists, anything we can do to control the situation, to control the situation and cover our shame. You remember during the early stages of the pandemic, if I'm allowed to talk about this, <laughs> we had this, this few weeks of mandatory shutdowns, right? And everyone's kind of grateful for that in a, in a sense because unhurried time with our, our friends and our family. We can take walks. Some of us have been living next to neighbors for 10 years, and we never had a conversation with them until the pandemic, and now, now we're friends with them. The only distraction in the world was Tiger King on Netflix. But think about it. Now we're kind of right back in that place. The rat race of life, the endless climbing of ladders in this pursuit of fame and glory even a pandemic can't erase that, right? At what cost? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you are at the end of yourselves right now? How many of you are barely keeping it together? I know I am. The other day, um, our family's been hit with some large maintenance and repair bills on our home and so I'm already frustrated about the dwindling bank account balance, whatever that is for a pastor. Um, and so last week I go out to mow the lawn, which is something that I enjoy and something, something that actually gives me life. And just a few minutes into cutting the grass, the engine completely quits, seizes up. I can't get it started back again. And so I just walk in the house grab a sparkling water, sit on my comfy chair and just stew and just stew in my anger and my sadness. What are you doing, God? What are you doing? What is the cry of the ruptured heart? If our constant search for the good life and our incessant ache for the shame that we feel when, when we don't reach what we think is the good life, if that's not bearing fruit... If that's not leading to true flourishing, then what will? What can fully restore our hearts? If a judge, a king, a priest, or even an inheritance of a promised land can't do it, what can? Well, my family loves renovation shows. I don't know if you've seen Good Bones or uh, Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, these programs have, have taken over TV, and I think one of the reasons is because there's something about restoration itself that captures us. Uh, seeing this rest, restoration of a home from, from popcorn ceilings and, and 70s wallpaper and grungy cabinets to this latest modern design. Everything is always more beautiful 
And when uh, Chip and Joe, they, they, they pull back that barrier and they say, get ready to uh, meet your fixer upper. And there's this big reveal and our hearts are like, <gasps> what's it going to look like? And we're like, wow, I can't believe that happened to that home. It's completely restored. This world was created to reflect that radiance that I talked about earlier, the, the beauty of God. And when things that were broken are put back in their place, when things that were ruptured are restored, our hearts soar. So there's a warning in this parable. We talked about the warning that there are thorns growing up alongside the seed of the gospel, these distractions. But there's also grace here. Even in the midst of this, this deceitful Turkish delight that leads us away towards death and destruction, there's grace because Jesus is saying, there's another way. There's another way. Now, it's easy to read the parable, and, and, and I'm sure you have because I have before, and, and, and wonder, all right, how do I make myself like the good soil? Or, or maybe you, you have fear that your soil's just not good enough, right? I hope I'm good soil. <laughs> I hope, I really hope I am, but I'm not really sure. Or maybe, like me, there's, there's pride. Oh, I am the good soil. All those other soils, they're just no good. But this par parable is not just about the soil. This parable is first and foremost about the grace of God and how his upside-down kingdom comes to us in smallness and in weakness. I say upside-down because the things of this world say, pursue everything that's higher. And the Messiah comes and makes himself lower. He says, this is what my kingdom's all about. The poor are made rich. The, mourn, the mourning are comforted. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake inherit the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' upside-down kingdom. He's in charge. He's the sower who sows the seed. And we are passive recipients of this gracious word that he gives us. But what is that word? And that's the interesting thing about this parable. That the sower is also the seed. That, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John's gospel tells us. That, that the word who, who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, completely transcendent outside of our space and time, the word became flesh and took up residence in our neighborhood. That word, of course, is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and yet God pulled out all the stops and said, I'm sending my Son to restore your ruptured hearts. So God came. God came in the person of Jesus Christ. The sower became the seed. And Jesus not only taught on the, the, the gospel of the upside down kingdom, right? The kingdom, like I was saying, where the first are last and the last are first. The kingdom where the poor are made rich. The, the kingdom where the down and out are lifted up and rebels and rejects are, are, are welcome to dinner. Not only did Jesus teach on this blessed, gracious, glorious kingdom, 
but he also demonstrated it, right? It's not just his teaching we're captivated by, but it's, it's the way he demonstrates it. He touches lepers. He dignifies prostitutes. He forgives those whose debts toward God make them bankrupt 70 times over. He feeds the hungry. And even better than all of those things, he turns water into wine. He says the party is going to keep going. In addition to all of those things, his teaching and his works, Jesus himself was single-minded, wholehearted, perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, eyes not distracted by the things of this world, but eyes set towards Jerusalem, not to be lifted up as king, but to be lifted up on a cross. Remember, Jesus was tempted to throw in the towel right away. You see that he's tempted by Satan, and Satan says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. The crowds pressed in. They wanted to make him king. Even his disciples were like, Jesus, there's got to be another way, right? Because Israel's got to be restored. These Romans need to be put in their place. Jesus was tempted to throw it all away for the desires and delights of the world. And yet he didn't. He remained wholehearted to the end. Jesus, who the writer of the Hebrews says, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus was tempted and tested in every way that we are as humans, and yet he resisted. And so this wholehearted Christ, who loved us to the end, even through the betrayal of his closest friend, who was tempted by the thorns of this world, right, Judas. He loved us to the end. He went to the cross to exchange the radiance of his whole heart for our ruptured hearts. He wore a crown of thorns for those of us who are tempted and, and who delight in the thorns of this world. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, a shameful, shameful cross to cover our shame. And he did it simply because he loves you. You are his joy. You are what kept his eyes fixed on the cross. And it wasn't just the cross, right? Because the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Jesus is vindicated. He is wholehearted. If he wasn't, then he'd still be in the tomb. He is risen. He is risen indeed, which means all we have to do to experience wholeheartedness in this life, to bear fruit, is to fix our eyes on him, on the cross, to believe on the resurrected Christ, Verse 12 says, to turn and be forgiven, to hear the good news, to receive the seed of the gospel with gladness, to abide in Jesus, our vine, to make our home in him because he has made his home with us. You know, when God's people in the Old Testament had sold out, remember God's people, they had turned to other gods, they had turned to idols, they'd become distracted by the cares of this world. And God said, okay, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to scatter you to the far reaches of 
this known world. But, he said, from there you will seek the Lord your God and find him if you search for him with all your heart. He says, your Lord, your, Lord, your God, is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget you, ever. So no matter where you come from this morning, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've blown it and you've been distracted by the cares of the world, and no matter how many times you're on the other side and you've just crossed your arms and looked down on those who are destroying their lives, because those are two sides of the same coin. The prodigal son and the elder brother. And the father entreats both of them and calls them both to come in. Search after that father with all your heart. He is merciful and ready to forgive. That's what we're doing here today. That's why we come to worship. It's, this isn't just a religious uh, box to check off this morning. One author says, this is, this is, what, this is our gymnasium in here. This is, what, this is what gets us athletic. This is what, why we can go out into the world because our hearts here are recalibrated. Our desires, our disordered desires are put in the right place so that we can radiate the love of God, so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, Scotty Scheffler, some of you do know him, some of you don't. He's a golfer. Uh, if you don't know golf, the Masters is like the Super Bowl or the World Series of, of the golf world. And if you don't know what the Super Bowl or, or World Series are, then ask your neighbor. Um, Scotty Scheffler this year, Scotty Scheffler won, and he had never won a, a, a open, he had never won a, a PGA championship, major championship before. And, um, but he did really well. He kind of cruised on that last day. There was a, uh, Rory McIlroy kind of made a, a run at the end, but Scotty Scheffler hold him, held him off. And it was impressive. But what was more impressive was the, the press conference afterward. He said that that, that morning of that final round, his, him and his wife usually pray for peace. Just, just God, give me peace as I, as I play. Help me to glorify you on the course today. But he said that morning he was a mess. He said he was crying like a baby. He was so stressed out. He didn't know what to do. He's just beside himself, sitting next to his wife, Meredith. He's overwhelmed, self-doubt, anxiety. He says, I'm, I'm not ready for this kind of thing. But his wife stuck with him. She said, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you, and nothing changes that. Who says something like that? Right? Fame and power and wealth await this family if he wins this tournament. And Meredith Scheffler says, none of those things matter. All that matters is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. That's the power of the resurrection at work. God is restoring her heart, and that's what he does for us as well. That restoration project that we were talking about, the fixer-upper project, God's not just rearranging furniture. He's not planting some tulips to make us look pretty on the outside. He's knocking down walls. Some of you like demo projects. That's what God does in our hearts. 
He gives us a new heart so that, so that we who, who have hoarded and envied and stolen, our hearts are changed to be open-handed and generous. We who, who, whose desires never seem to weaken for the next thing in this world, our desires God teaches to, to uh, find true satisfaction in him. Our anxiety never disappears in this world. Jesus doesn't say fear not because he thinks we're going to stop fearing. He says fear not so that we will look to him to keep our eyes on Jesus as we run, as we press on. The distraction and desires are many. And he says, I am with you to the end of the age. We're past time, but I want to end with this. We started with Narnia. I'm going to end with Bluey. All right, some of you know Bluey. Bluey's a big deal. And uh, I know you parents know Bluey. Bluey's this preschool cartoon. And it's more than a cartoon because it's become this sort of phenomenon. And recently on Disney Plus, Bluey, uh, the season three, just came out. And it was this huge deal. It was probably bigger than Obi-Wan Kenobi, probably bigger than Stranger Things. Season three comes out. But there's one episode, I don't know if you've ever seen it, one episode in, in um, season, I think it was season one. It won all kinds of awards. In fact, uh, on this one Reddit thread, this one guy says, people ask me why I, a single guy in his 20s with no children, am so obsessed with a show aimed at preschoolers. But I show them this episode. And the episode is called Sleepy Time. Y'all ever seen Sleepy Time? So Bluey is uh, a mom and a dad and uh, two sisters, and they're young. They're like six and four or something like that. And sleepy time, is, it's like eight minutes long, and all it is is this bedtime routine. But it's so endearing because it hits all of us. We know what that, especially as parents, we know what that bed t- bedtime routine looks like. We know, just like in this show, Sleeping Time, that, that there's going to be uh, protests. I'm not tired, right? I'm not ready for bed. Oh, what about one more story? Oh, I need a drink of water. Oh, I've got to go to the bathroom, right? There's all these things, distractions from the task ahead, which is sleep. And we parents especially feel that. But it's so beautiful. This, this one episode is actually more about Bluey's sister, Bingo. Bingo falls asleep. And most of the, the episode is about this dream sequence. And it's combining the, her bedtime stories. And, and she's kind of floating through space with her, with her, with her lovey. And But what's so beautiful about it is right before Bingo went to bed, mom said, remember, I'm always here if you need me. Because she's like, I'm going to sleep like a big girl now. I'm going to sleep like a big girl. And mom says, remember, I'm always here if you need me. And so it goes through this dream sequence and the getting the water and the going to the bathroom and all these things and the twisting and turning and kicking mom and dad, getting in their bed and doing all these sorts of things. But it ends in in, in the dream sequence. You'll have to look this up because I can't really describe it very well. But it's kind of floating through space towards the sun. And the sun is mom. And what what has happened in in, in actual life is mom has has gotten into bed with Bingo because, because Bingo lost her blanket. Mom got into bed and wrapped Bingo for warmth. And it ends with this. Remember, I'll always be here for you, even if you can't see me, because I love you. Jesus is with us to the end of the age. He 
doesn't remove us from the thorns. But he says, my grace is sufficient. And he's changing our hearts from the inside out. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, as we come to the table this morning, as we celebrate that you have called the prodigal, the one who has, has left the home and squandered everything and chased the desires, but you've also called the elder brother to this table, the elder brother who crosses his arms and won't come into the party. So whether it's our unrighteousness or our self-righteousness, God, we need to be welcomed here to the table, and you do that every time. And it's all of grace. So call us to this table by your grace. In Christ's name.